Welcome to Dungeons and Dinners, where the love of fantasy is food for thought. I'm your host, Brett Lindley, and today I'm talking about smoking meat and learning from others. If you'd like to support the podcast and fund new monsters, bonus episodes, recipes, and modules like the recently released free adventure, Mansion of the Mad Mage, head on over to patreon.com slash dungeonsanddinners. Welcome! Take a seat anywhere. We'll be right with you. Callus looked up at the somber face of her master. Just a minute prior, a flurry of battle had ensued. She looked at the monster behind them, lying dead from a thousand cuts and blows delivered against its ancient hide while not a scratch showed on the armor of her teacher. "'How did you do it?' she asked. "'It is the skill of a warrior. It is our history. It is simply what we do and what we have always done.' From behind a nearby pillar, Meek the kobold bard popped out, happy to be safe once again, and chirped a more curt reply. Your masters trained under twelve masters before them, for twenty years, was then blessed by the gods, and granted many powerful totems to aid them. So, basically, lots of practice, and a few good tools. Oh, and of course, the inspiration of a finely crafted tune of Grand Battle Never Hurt. Speaking of which, what's a good rhyme for... What's this monster called again? Oh, and can we eat it? I've spoken a lot before about how expertise can be a problem for a newcomer to any craft. This includes uh, everything from picking up a new TTRPG to learning how to cook. And I feel like it's something that should kind of reiterate and go over my own recent experience uh, learning to do some new things with my smoker, and uh, how I approached and overcame some of those challenges. So to kind of reiterate, experts often make things look easy. They've done it hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of times before, depending on what it is exactly that they're an expert in and what they're kind of showcasing. And also, a lot of things that at least I experience uh, in doing research for really any project oftentimes come in the form of, at least first, a, a YouTube video. This is a great way to find and see exactly what's going on and exactly how to approach a project. But it comes with the problem of the magic of editing. So anything that's not done live is going to be edited down and the oftentimes the mistakes are removed. There are some uh, creators that include their mistakes, which I find really helpful and useful. But more often than not, you get a pared-down version of what's going on. Things are sped up, time lapses are used, or people just talk about, uh, off-camera, I did something, right? And so you're not going to see every step, especially in bigger projects, uh, things like like woodworking, you may have a project that takes a week to complete that is presented in a 10 to 20 minute video with, uh, you know, maybe a link for plans at the end or something. And this can give the illusion that it is very easy to do. And in fact, the project may not be terribly difficult, but the reality and the scope of the project is not entirely presented. Of course, a week-long YouTube video is not going to be very entertaining, and oftentimes you're going to have issues where 
if the video or the presentation is not uh, a showing of the expertise involved, people aren't going to, at least I won't, necessarily watch the whole thing because I may feel like the person is not an expert and therefore not somebody that I should be learning from. This also kind of gets you running into the same issue where sometimes it, it can be difficult to have done something thousands of times to be able to explain those pitfalls. And everybody's going to have different pitfalls. Everybody's going to run into issues even learning the same craft because your experiences are unique. And there's going to be things that you bring to any new craft trade or hobby that someone else may not have. So you're going to have to learn uh, certain things while you may already be experienced in or have the cognitive discipline to do other things just kind of better from your previous experiences. So you run you run into the issue of having something already mastered. It, it can be difficult to explain all of the things that you had to learn and all of the pitfalls and all of the places where things can go wrong. And a lot of times, especially in a presentation format, you don't want to explain every single thing that could go wrong because you may be drawing upon thousands or tens of thousands of lessons of errors learned and all of those mistakes do not make for an entertaining video most of the time. You usually want to hit the biggest ones and move on. I do this frequently when I try to explain things. I can't explain uh, you know, 20 years of experiential knowledge in, you know, tabletop RPGs or in cooking, I try to focus on the, the biggest lessons that you can learn and the biggest mistakes that you're probably going to make, uh, or at least things that I made and could be, you know, dangerous for others, and then move on to the next topic. And so, it can be very frustrating to see someone do something in 10 minutes and then go out and try to do it yourself and have it be a week or more long project. I I did a sculpture once uh, of a beholder, actually. I'll see if I can't dig up pictures of that and post them. I don't think I've posted them on the Dungeons & Nerds Twitter, but I did a, a sculpture of a beholder, and it's giant. It's uh, about three foot cubed is about the space that it, that it fits in, and it weighs like 20 pounds. I got the inspiration to do this from several people that had done uh, paper mache crafting of things like dragon heads or mounted monster heads and thought that I could probably pretty easily make a beholder. And so I set out and got all of the materials that I thought I would need. I even picked up a couple of books uh, on the subject of paper mache and more advanced paper mache techniques. I acquired bits of foam, I found a beach ball to use as the body, and started with the part that I knew myself, which was I was going to really focus on the eyes. So I wanted them to be crafted from polymer clay and have depth to them with a clear acrylic shell over the top of them to really be able to show the, the depth of the iris. If you ever look at uh, any blown-up pictures of the human iris or, or just any iris uh, of an eyeball, like on YouTube or, or not YouTube, Google Images or whatever, you'll see that there's a lot of depth, there's a lot of shade and shadow, and there's little canyons and crevices. They're not flat. 
And a lot of times when I see model eyeballs, even larger ones, they're often either a dome of clear acrylic that the back of it is painted to put the eyeball on, or a an eyeball image is printed out with the pupil and the iris and then glued or adhered to the bottom of the the dome, the clear dome in some way. And I wanted depth. So I started there because I'm already fairly comfortable with working with polymer clay. I had a pretty solid idea of what I was going to do. And then so I did that. What I wasn't very experienced in was working with paper mache. And it's something that I thought, you know, is going to be easy. It's just newspaper and glue and surfaces to put things on. And then magic happens, and in five minutes, I'll have a completed product, because that's how it is on the video, right? And this project took a little over a month. I think it was close to two months from start to finish. Of course, just working on odd hours at night, although some days were full weekend days, and it evolved from paper mache to getting into expanding spray foam, uh, solid foam, different gauges of heavy wire, and then evolved further as I started having issues with the weight of the uh, tentacles that hold the eyeballs up and the overall weight of the entire model needing to get in and learn how to use fiberglass resin and epoxies and learning how to, like, bondo a lot of heavier, more complicated and advanced materials that really aren't made for this kind of sculpture, and of which also there's not, you know, a tutorial that I could follow on how to bondo a beholder body and eye stalks to make it work properly. Now, in the end, I did succeed in the project that I had tackled. It turned out really cool, uh, but there was a lot of sudden learning that had to happen. Places where I was in the middle of something and wanted to give up because it wasn't working using the materials and structure that I had started with, and especially it was nowhere near the idea that I had in mind. I did not have the idea of using like two gallons of Bondo material and working with, you know, activators and things like that to smear onto this thing to get enough structural integrity to hold the whole thing together. That was not my intent from the start. It was 10 minutes of paper mache. Well, I, I knew it wasn't going to be 10 minutes, but a 10 minute video on paper mache a couple of quick books, looked simple, figure I'll just go for it. But that appearance of simplicity is kind of the Dunning-Kruger curve of expertise. It looks easy because I am referencing material that masters of that selected craft had written down and presented. And it's really hard to convey the amount of learning that goes into anything to get to that expert point. And so when you're looking at any, pretty much any tabletop RPG of choice outside of very, very simplistic ones, uh, you're looking at an average of at least a couple hundred pages of basic rules, quote, and then many systems go on to expand upon them 
with additional books or absolute anthologies chock full of information. This is all stuff that you may think every dungeon master above you has completely memorized, and that is just simply not the case. You don't have to memorize every rule. The books will be there to reference. But it is kind of useful to lean on those experts. Those experts are there to give us not just an example of something to try to achieve, but also a place to start, and maybe some of those pitfalls we can find and figure out. And some experts offer a wide variety of uh, tutorials and trainings, which can also be really interesting and useful because it allows me to go in and pick just what I want to learn or figure out and get a foundation. And that foundation is important. It is useful. If I did not read the books and watch the videos on paper mache, I wouldn't have had the base foundation, and I probably would have run into even more problems when sculpting the giant holder. And so having that foundation and at least getting a start, getting kind of that head start in learning, is super important. And experts, uh, some of my favorite experts for the the tabletop RPG or specifically kind of D&D sphere that I lean on often, of course, Matt Mercer is a, you know, a masterclass in improvisation, inclusion, and immersiveness. Matt Mercer does a good job at telling a story that keeps people interested, and I think that those are good things to learn from him. Whereas Matt Colville is an expert tactician and leans on the more kind of fun and somewhat devious side of things, where if you want traps or really interesting combat encounters, uh, Matt Colville's got those covered in spades. Uh, Dale Kingsmill, also known as uh, Monarchs Factory, has really great uh, ideas and showcases of how to develop campaign settings and interesting places and characters, and I absolutely love her work. And so picking a master to go learn from or picking out a piece of content to go experience and learn and dive into and pick apart is really, really good for setting up your foundations. When I run campaigns, I do not expect myself to be a Matt Mercer. There's been a lot of uh, conversation around the quote-unquote Matt Mercer effect, which is kind of a terrible word for it because it it does kind of diminish a really good dungeon master down to more of a connotative experience. But alas, that's the term that's out there right now, and uh, that effect has happened to a lot of new uh, dungeon masters. So a lot of people are just cautious uh, to make sure and say, hey, you don't have to be Matt Mercer just because you got into D&D from Critical Role. We're happy to have you here. We're happy that you're ready and wanting to learn and run the game, but don't expect you to be that right out the gate, right? And it's something to tell players as well that not every dungeon master is a Matt Mercer. Uh, They're also not a Matt Colville or a Dale Kingsmill. And Letting, you know, letting yourself distinguish between, you know, masters and, uh, <laughs> I, I hesitate to say the rest of us, um, because they're not that much greater than us, and there are tons and tons of unsung heroes and amazing content creators, 
And I really encourage you to just go dig through some of the rest of the creative space there, because I think that it's easy to see these you know, big time creators as kind of like pop stars, really, where, you know, there's a lot of good indie music out there that's produced by people that aren't just on the top 100 charts list. So go and dig and find new content out there. But myself, uh, and I'm sure many others, oftentimes also seek the help of, like we said, the unsung heroes, uh, which I kind of consider the absolute deluge the treasure trove of knowledge that is within reddit and twitter and other social media because you can get the experiences and the advice of many many other dungeon masters who are willing to share their thoughts and opinions on things sometimes to the detriment of the conversation but that's kind of the risk that you have to run when you dig into those places. But there's also so, so many amazing creators out there that have really good advice that are going to be able to help you in maybe a more personal manner, especially when you have a more specific question. The experts are great, like I said, for that generalized foundation because they're speaking to a really broad audience and therefore paint in broad brushstrokes. But the members of a more personal community can give you a much more tailored uh, situational advice on handling a specific situation or rules question or campaign storyline hook, any number of things that you can think of. Um, those are going to be great treasure troves. But also, don't underestimate the power of friends, family, and conversation. Just because your friends or your family uh, may not even play D&D, if they do, of course, then that's the most personal experience that you can get for advice. But even if they don't, don't write off trying to explain your problem to them in ways that they're going to be able to understand. Now, while they may not be able to help you with something like a specific rules question, simply taking the time to reframe the question that you have in a way that you'll be able to explain it to somebody who is unfamiliar with the situation that you're encountering may actually help you find the answer. There's a lot of times where I've gotten stuck trying to solve a problem, and it's not until I try to talk to somebody that is completely on the opposite end of the spectrum of where that problem exists and forces me to explain it to them in just a different way that I suddenly find out that the root of the problem, the question that I was focused on, was not the right question. And when I found a way to explain it in, in a new manner... I suddenly saw that the answer was right in front of me this whole time, and by the time I'm done just explaining the problem, I go, oh, I figured it out. Uh, on the flip side, there have been many times where I've explained things to my mom and my dad or some of my close friends in a way that is easier for them to understand from their perspective, and they, while they don't aren't able to offer kind of the expert ex advice-specific solution— their own perspective may have a broader, more generalized answer where they're like, well, have you thought of trying something kind of like this? Is this what you're talking about? Because this might work. And a lot of the time, those answers, again, it's all about getting that perspective. With that, I would like to dive into and give you all some of my perspective on a situation that I just encountered this last week. So first, a little bit of backstory. 
Uh, I've spoken before that mostly I deal in sauces and uh, not a lot of baking. I'm also not the biggest or best griller. Uh, I can, you know, I can cook a steak, I can grill a hamburger, but I don't trust myself and oftentimes use thermometers to tempt things because the, like, palm method with, like, you press on your fingers down, so many fingers down, you press on it and you know the temperature of the meat by how it, like, resists. I'm not good at any of that. I'm not good at, at temping meat because I don't have that amount of experience. Additionally, I never smoked meat before. And about four years ago, uh, we were in a position where we needed a new grill and we said, why not? Let's go for it. Let's get this coolest thing that we can afford. And it happened to have a side smoker, like a, a little side chamber for charcoal smoking. And so we picked it up and I went on the internet and watched a few videos and read a few guides and learned, again, that foundation of smoking meat. And was told that through various sources that it's really hard to screw up smoked ribs, so start there. And I did. And after, you know, the first one wasn't the best, but it was still good. And within a couple few times, I got the knack for how really to, to control the temperature of the smoker and how that particular smoker worked and was able to make smoked ribs. And then I stopped there. I, sure, I threw on maybe potatoes or sweet potatoes or pineapples along with them on occasion, but pretty much I just smoked ribs because they were relatively fast, something that I could do in an afternoon, and they were pretty simple, they didn't take too terribly much work, and I was good at them. I knew how to do them, so I got stuck in this, that's what I know how to do, so that's what I'm going to do. And I was just something about working with brines and brining overnight or long 16-hour smokes or trying to set up the smoker for an overnight thing. All of this just seemed kind of scary, really. Like, there was some hesitancy to smoke anything bigger or better or whatever and just uh this very recently i had a, a friend come down from another state uh we had just gotten vaccinated so it was time to see a few new people that we'd had to cancel our vacation last year to not see them so it had been a couple of years since i'd seen them and they came down and another mutual friend of ours uh treated us by picking up uh a pork shoulder and said, hey, let's, you've got a smoker, uh, let's do some pulled pork. Now, all these other two friends of mine are both also pretty proficient cooks, and one of them, the, the one that flew up into town, kind of taught me a lot of the things that I know. And so I thought, well, one, I can't say no to somebody purchasing really nice cuts of meat and saying, hey, let's smoke them. I, I'm not going to be like, nah, let's just do ribs. I decided to kind of face my own fear and say, you know what, I will have support in this situation. There will be other people here to help me and guide me. So sure, let's do it. And I was pretty forthright about it. I was like, hey, I've never smoked a shoulder before, so I'm going to lean on you for what you know and, and show me these things. And so sure enough, uh, 
I was taught how to properly brine a pork shoulder. And then, you know, because I had worked with the smoker enough, I knew how to set it up and how to get the temperature going and, and how to get that in the right area. But yeah, we smoked it and we threw some rub on it and we smoked it all day. Now, it was a massive pork shoulder and it did not very quickly get up to temp, even with the smoker running hot. Uh, but it was okay. They said, hey, we'll just finish it off in the oven, which the first thing that kind of blew my mind there was like, oh yeah, I don't have to smoke it for 16 hours. I can finish it in the... I have an appliance that does this, that's specifically made for cooking, right? And the flavor will still be there, and you can get it up to temp uh, much faster by baking it at the end. And additionally, so we, we did that, and the pulled pork, the, the ends were really good and shredded very well and became the pulled pork kind of classic kind of thing that you would expect, but the middle was still kind of tough. And one of my other buddies, the guy that had purchased the meat, said, uh, hey, a pro tip, throw it in the crock pot overnight because that will render all the fat and connective tissue out for what you don't use for dinner on the night that you smoke it, and in the morning, it'll be perfect. And this was something that I'd never heard before and almost sounded kind of like heresy. It was like, you're going to crockpot this? But no, it's actually a fairly common tactic and it works really, really well. I took the remaining probably, I don't know, four pounds. Like it was a massive cut of meat. Threw it in the crockpot with like half a cup of water, set it to low. We went to bed. The next morning, woke up, the house smelled amazing because it had <laughs> pulled pork, <laughs> essentially uh, not sautéing, but just soaking in and venting overnight. So the house, the whole house smelled like pulled pork, <laughs> which was I fine by me. I was good with. But yeah, the next morning, it was perfect. It just fell apart. And it it's one of those things where I was afraid of like, oh my god, I don't have the time or the capability to run an 18-hour smoke. Our smoker is nice, but it's not that nice, right? It doesn't have all the bells and whistles, and it's certainly not electric or Bluetooth or anything like that. So I don't think I can can do this, and turns out I could. And so I just learned to be a little less afraid and to lean on my experts. There were people there that had done these things, and they had two different viewpoints uh, one of them was finish it in the oven to get it at least eatable for that evening's meal. But then they didn't know how exactly to, they didn't offer any suggestions of like, hey, let's do it this way. When our other buddy suggested the crock pot, both of us looked at him and was like, oh, that's genius. That's great. Let's do that. So I, I guess really the, the point here is lean on multiple sources and don't be afraid to dive into a situation just because it's something that you haven't done before. And also don't don't allow yourself to get stuck doing the same thing because you know it's what you're good at. That it's okay to take some risks. And I mean, technically you could say that I had failed, right? That the pulled pork was not perfect when I pulled it off the smoker. It then had to go into the oven and we were we were running it the whole day, right? And then after that, it still wasn't perfect and had to go into a crock pot. But really, it, perfection is not terribly important because perfect is an obscure, amorphous term of something that can't really exist anyway. So 
throw that out the window and just ask some questions. Hey, can we make this better? And do we have what we need to do that with? So all of that said, I do want to offer a recipe for this episode, and that is if you would like to learn how to smoke meat and you have a a device that can hold some charcoal and contain the smoke, uh, you can, in fact, smoke on pretty much any grill, depending on the size and, you know, how much you're trying to get done here. And while I won't go into all of the specifics of how to learn how to smoke meat, I will give you my recipe for a 3-2-1 smoke on a rack of ribs. So a 3-2-1 smoke is that's just the number of hours that it spends in each situation. So it spends three hours smoking, two hours uh, in foil smoking again, and then one hour finishing with smoke. So I use pork ribs. Uh, usually get them in like a two-pack, and uh, we start with the three-hour smoke, which is if you're like in a small grill, basically anything, however you want to do it, you want indirect heat, so you don't want it right over coals, right? So three hours smoking at around 200 degrees Fahrenheit, and I tend to enjoy using pecan or applewood chips to help with the smoke. And I rotate them once about every hour or so because our particular smoker has a really big hot spot. So I'll kind of flip them, like rotate them 180 degrees to cook the other side and then flip them one to the other. Sometimes every 45 minutes, you don't want to open the smoker all the time because you don't want to lose your heat. Uh, But rotating them to get both sides cooked and flipping positions so that each one gets to spend an equal amount of time near the hot spot. So here comes the secret spot. So you take them off the smoker and you build like a boat out of aluminum foil that you're going to put them in with enough extra foil that you can wrap them completely once you're done with this step. But the boat is important because of the secret ingredient that I throw in, which is cheap brandy. Uh, Really the cheapest brandy that you can get uh, in the largest bottle that you can get and then just use it for cooking. Uh, I use about a cup of brandy and a cup of water to make two cups of solution because I'm going to add one cup of that solution to each of these boats for the ribs. But I don't just dump it in there. I make sure to pour it over the top of the ribs because you want the top uh, to be moistened up some. Because secret ingredient number two is about half a cup of brown sugar for each of your racks of ribs. Spread it on top, kind of pack it down, tamp it down, whatever, and then, you know, the rest of the, you've poured the brandy in, you pack it all with brown sugar on top, and that that moisture helps the brown sugar stick to the top. Then you finish wrapping them up and throw them back on the smoker, make sure to leave the brown sugar side up. And now that they're wrapped, they'll smoke once again, rotating about once every hour or so for two hours, and all of that brown sugar is going to caramelize and melt down and dissolve into the brandy. The brandy is going to evaporate and steam the ribs, kind of. They're going to keep them really, really uh, tender and delicious. And then you're going to take them out of the foil very carefully, because if you poke a hole in the foil with tongs or something, it's going to make a big mess, a very sticky, sugar-watery mess. But when you take them out of the foil, save that sugar water, because it is awesome for two reasons. One, you still have an hour left of smoking that you need to go through and, again, kind of reloading up your wood chips to give them that finished flavor. And you can use this sugar water to kind of baste them and increase the numbers of caramel layers on top. 
And second is when you pull them off and you're totally done, you let them rest for a little bit and you cut the ribs all apart, right before you serve them, like when you plate them, just a teaspoon of that sugar water sauce over the top of them, oh man, it it sets them off. They're amazing. It's a really simple smoked rib recipe. Uh, salt and pepper the ribs before you throw them on to smoke the first time. If you include salt and pepper in ingredients, you've got five ingredients, meat, salt, pepper, brandy, and uh, brown sugar, maybe six if you include water as an ingredient. So still, the real cooking happens with about two to four ingredients, depending on what you consider there. Super, super simple. And if you need to, finish them in the oven to get them up to temp. It'll be delicious either way. And I hope that uh, somebody out there that may have been afraid of smoking uh, or think that you don't have a smoker so you can't do it, you could probably easily do one rack of ribs on the side of a small like Weber grill as long as you do a small bit of charcoal on the opposite side because all it is is indirect heat. That's all smoking is. Indirect heat, some water, some wood chips. You'll be fine. It's not difficult. I was afraid of it for years, and I wish that I would have gotten into smoking meat much earlier because now I'm interested in doing all of the things. Smoke all of the meats, get a cold smoker, and do cheeses, and do whatever. All of it is now accessible because I've kind of overcome those my second big hurdle, which was smoking something gigantic. Uh, so with that, get out there, try something new, learn from the experts, but do not... Be disappointed and don't beat yourself up if you're not an expert on your first or second or thousandth run because even when you feel like you know something, the smallest change like weight or size can make a lot of difference in the experience of trying something new. So that's all for the episode today. Please let me know your thoughts, comments, or episode ideas. All of my links and contact information can be found on the card website that's down in the show notes. If you're interested in supporting the show and uh, possibly supporting more future bonus content, consider tossing some coins over to patreon.com slash dungeonsanddinners. If you're looking for other great podcasts to listen to, you can check out my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a long-form podcast about why gaming matters in the scope of video games and uh, other types of gaming content. It's co-hosted by myself and my dear friend, Walker Near. I'm really excited to be sharing this journey with you, and remember that love is the secret ingredient. Have a good day, friend. Thanks for stopping by.